Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. A little bit of housekeeping at the top. Next week in this country, as I'm sure you know, will be holding a national election. In case, for some reason, you still don't know how and where to vote, be sure to visit www.vote.org. That's www.vote.org. With that in mind, we'll be off this coming Sunday, November 1st, and we'll be returning that following week, Sunday, November 8th, with Professor Noam Chomsky. But today, I'm pleased to have on Dr. Ashish Jha, and Justin Rosenstein. My talk with Dr. Ja will come on the back half of this episode. So to start, Justin is the co-founder of a company called Asana, a web and mobile application designed to help teams organize, track, and manage their work. But earlier in his career, Justin worked at Google, where he was an instrumental figure in the creation of Google Drive. Once he left Google, he moved to Facebook, where he helped co-create the like button. Can you imagine your life without Google Drive and the like button on Facebook? The fact that we probably can't imagine that is why I'm having Justin on today. He's one of several talking heads in the new film called The Social Dilemma. By now, you've likely seen or heard of it. It's a new documentary on Netflix that features several key players within Silicon Valley all of whom are sounding the alarm on the dangerous human impact of social networking. 
Given Justin's expertise in the field, I wanted to sit with him to discuss the dangers of social media, the polarization created by these platforms, and the role these tech companies have in our elections. I also wanted to better understand how we got to this dire moment where more and more of us are addicted to our phones, to our virtual presence. And then, once we understand how we got here, we discuss where we could go as we think about life online and off after November 3rd. So, without further ado, here is Justin Rosenstein. Justin Rosenstein, thank you very much for being here. As people are listening to this conversation, we are less than five days out from the election. And that's where I want to start this talk. How do you think these social media companies have handled the 2020 election versus the 2016 election? Certainly a lot of measures have been taken. And I... I don't track every single measure. Some of the things have, it seems, succeeded in curbing some of the more egregious problems. And I want to give credit where credit's due to the extent the companies have invested in that. I'm, I'm thrilled to see them, them taking seriously the responsibility that they have, essentially as the, the public square. Like th- This is the place in which democracy is increasingly happening, is on these social media platforms. And in order for us to consider the results of our democracy legitimate, we have to feel like that public square where the discourse is happening is a place that is capable of handling the civic conversations that we need and not leading to disastrous runaway effects. But the extent to which the fundamental structure of social media has remained completely unchanged over the last four years is concerning, uh, to say the least. The business model of social media companies, the way that they maximize profit, and also the internal metrics they use, which sometimes aren't as simple as maximizing money or as simple as maximizing like number of minutes spent staring at your screen, but they're all basically just engagement metrics. They're all essentially that companies consider themselves more successful and they profit more, roughly the more time you spend staring at a screen. And then they have designers who are entrusted to try to maximize to those metrics. And they have artificial intelligences, these literally supercomputer intelligences that have been tasked with, okay, given all this data and all these patterns, what can you do in terms of what videos you recommend on YouTube or what posts you recommend on Facebook to maximize for these engagement metrics? And if you do that, you don't need malintent. You don't need anyone cackling, being like, ha, we're going to destroy democracy, we're going to polarize people, we're going to addict people and decrease their ability to make sense of reality. The emergent phenomenon of the rules of that game, of, of any system that is incentivized and optimized to maximize for those metrics, is going to have the emergent phenomenon of, of increasing polarization because it turns out that things that are outrageous make us spend more time looking at our screens information that confirms our existing biases or that makes us feel like we're learning the truth but isn't necessarily grounded in reality. Things like sensationalist false conspiracy theories. These things are much more likely to spread in that environment. And and it it shows up in the data. Like There was studies done that fake news spreads six times faster 
than real news on Twitter. And that's because real news has to be nuanced and has to reflect the truth. And if you're unbound from that because you're just willing to say anything, you can make something that's much more likable, something much more likely to be retweeted and shared. And so in those dynamics, you're making it extremely hard for the truth to win out and increasingly easy and unstoppable uh, without major change for these shadow sides of, of human nature to be amplified. As someone who worked at Google and then Facebook, at which point in the timeline of your experience there did you realize that fake news spread faster than real news? I only worked at, I worked at Google for three years. I worked at Facebook for just a year and a half and left to start Asana, the collaboration software company, which I worked on for 10 years after that. And at the time I left, I mean, the like button was just barely launching. The website was quite small and... Launched in part by you, right? Yeah, yeah co-invented me and a team. I want, we got to give you some credit here while you're on the podcast, Justin. Uh, a mixed bag of credit. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I can... You know, at the time, it was a relatively small website. It was definitely not the center of political discourse. We were really interested as a team in this idea of, could you help help connect people in, in positive ways? Mm-hmm. And the like button came out of some, you know, in hindsight, very earnest, wholesome conversations about, wow, we've got all these people using this service. Can we, can we use design in a positive way, in a mindful way to increase, make it, make, it the, make it even easier to spread little bits of positivity, little bits of love. And it, was, it wasn't meant as, we didn't expect it was going to be this massive success. It was like, oh, here's a fun little feature that adds delight, hopefully, to people's lives. At the time, we were definitely not anticipating what the potential unintended consequences of that could be. Um, I think part of that, maybe it was intrinsically difficult to imagine fast forward many years later and Teenagers would be depressed if they weren't getting enough likes, and people would feel addicted to these, in hindsight, quite shallow, hollow, dopamine feedback loops of, of self-affirmation of your ego, which in the moment make you feel slightly relieved, but in the long run don't make you feel any better about yourself because the actual craving one feels inside cannot be filled by, by any number of millions of likes. We, we were not anticipating that you'd get to a world where people were doing political discourse and likes would create this feedback loop where you were always getting reinforced your own position rather than being exposed to other people's position. You know, in hindsight, I think that certainly if we had had a more diverse team, if we had had more attention to trying to anticipate unintended consequences, if we had employed anthropologists or sociologists or psychologists or phenomenologists or philosophers or even you know people who who were expert on humanities who were thinking a bit more about the lessons of Frankenstein, like there 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 could have been ways potentially to catch it. But I think you're always going to have unintended consequences, or you're always open to that risk. So mm-hmm. you, there's also the question of making sure that you have feedback loops to to monitor and ensure that you are always reguiding yourself back to your original intention. And so now it's you know like is a very simple emotion. It was meant as an experiment. We were trying to see, would anyone be interested in this? Would, would this feature even get used? But in hindsight, the idea of optimizing for what people like has a lot of deep philosophical problems with it, right? What I like isn't necessarily what is most useful to me right now, isn't necessarily what aligns with my intentions right now. 
isn't necessarily the, the truth that disagrees with my existing viewpoint, but that allows me to see the world more clearly. Uh, so there's yeah, many ways in hindsight to uh, imagine that being evolved and remedied. But the fact that those things haven't been remedied is, of course, very disheartening. So I want to go back to something you just said about not anticipating the unintended consequences of the technology. That's the kind of sentiment we've heard repeated over and over again in the last few years, whether it's by Mark Zuckerberg on Capitol Hill or Tristan Harris in your film, The Social Dilemma. We have technology being made and mass-produced without anticipating the unintended human consequences. And I find this a little bit odd because you and many others behind these companies are very smart people, right? You're very talented, bright, thoughtful people. And each of you spend a lot of time anticipating in other areas. You anticipate technological advancements. You anticipate profit margins. You anticipate growth. But in your estimate, you don't anticipate the consequences of how this technology may affect people. Why is that human consideration ignored? It's a great question. And, and to be clear, I bring it up not as an excuse, but just as a, a warning for, for precisely this reason of like, increasingly, we as a, a technology industry, as, as people creating anything in the world, I, I certainly feel like I learned the hard way, need to spend a lot more time doing that. Mm-hmm. There's doing that yourself as an, anyone involved in the creation of these systems. And then there's also acknowledging that no matter how hard you try to anticipate consequences, no matter how hard you try to, to see into your own blind spots, no one person is capable of that on their own. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it with a diverse group of people and diverse in many respects, including like the different kinds, as I said, the different kinds of skills that they bring, the different lenses they have on reality, lenses they have on human nature. The kinds of consequences we're talking about, we certainly anticipated there would be consequences. That's why we were designing things. We, we, we had this hypothesis of if you design things in this way, you'll get these positive results. And, and that was what our goal was. We were focused on what could be better. The unintended consequences are often complex. They're nonlinear. It's not like, like to take the example of political polarization. Mm-hmm. When, when you're in the mindset and again, I'm just saying it because I think we, we're doing this all the time as we develop new things. It's easy to be in one mindset and fail to see the, the other important perspectives. But if you're in the mindset of this is a site that only just a couple years ago was used exclusively on college campuses, it really is a social network. There's not a lot of people using it for news and sp- spreading ideas in, in that way at the time. You think people are posting things about their private lives, things about their, their family, things they're proud of. And it's, e- it's easy to imagine, oh, if I get some people saying, I like that, I appreciate that, it's easy to imagine the warm, fuzzy feelings of feeling loved and appreciated and all the good things that come of that. And I think that does happen. I've definitely had really positive, wholesome experiences with these creations. Mm-hmm. Uh, many. I don't want to come off as a, a hater at all. I think there's a lot of good things that come out of these things. No, I, I've also had good experiences on drugs before. Yeah, right. <laughs> But, but when you're in that mindset, you don't think, okay, well, what's the multi-order effect? Like, okay, a- after this has been in the system for many years, what, what are the consequences of that? How does that slowly start to affect a person's psychology? How does that start to affect culture? Right? We take for granted these days all these people on Instagram taking selfies and competing for people to like them. But it takes a, a real creativity 
sociological creativity to think, okay, if you let that keep running its course for many years, what, what's going to happen? So it's a great question. I think it's that the consequences are complex and require multidisciplinary I think, you know, again, and maybe there's some people who are just intuitive, who, who do this intuitively and are very intelligent in those ways. But I think we, we need to both have people who are great at anticipating those consequences and apply structured processes to make sure that we can, we can see our own blind spots. The political polarization that you're talking about is really at the heart of the social dilemma in many ways, where you're presenting a situation where you and your brother or sister or father could log on to a platform like Facebook at the same time mm-hmm. and have very different experiences with very different news, in quotes, presented to you. Where are we at on this problem? So the, the problem that's occurring is structural. We spoke to this a second ago, that it's, it's not that someone is intentionally trying to polarize us, but the rules, the incentives, the way that the game, the game that is social media is set up it has this almost mathematically predictable consequence mm-hmm. that you're going to see people be driven further and further toward the extremes because, because that speaks to human cognitive biases, the desire for confirmation of your existing perspective. And that in, that in particular, companies profit the more that this occurs. The more this polarization occurs, the more that, you, that you're in a state of outrage, the more that you turn to your phone, the more that, the more, the more that these companies are hitting what they consider success metrics and are increasing their profits. And so it becomes very easy of looking at someone on the other side, or even conceiving of it that way, of like, I'm over here, I believe these things. And then there's those people over there who are just crazy. Like, how could they possibly still believe that crazy thing that is so obviously wrong? I mean, in the course of one day, let alone over the course of the last 10 years, I have seen so many things that so uncontrovertibly contradict what those crazy people think over there. And it's not just that there's a few crazy people over there. There's massive numbers of crazy people over there. Everyone's having that from their own vantage point because each person is seeing a different set of information. It's easy to be like, how could they be so stupid if there's, when aren't they seeing all the things I'm seeing? But they're not seeing the things you're seeing. They're seeing a different set of things. It's a crazy thing to think about that it's possible for, for multiple radically different whole worldviews to be simultaneously coexisting in a way where one side or another side of any particular argument doesn't just fall down because it just falls into some logical contradiction because it contradicts reality as it is. But reality is so complicated and so nuanced and any particular thing that occurs in the world can be spun in so many different ways. And especially when you have or say selfish actors, people who are not even attempting to approximate truth. That they, that's not even their goal. Their goal is power, is political power, acquisition of wealth, whatever it may be. And they're willing to just say anything as long as it is a benefit to their own ends. That creates this information ecology that is just extremely hard to make sense of. The power that these institutions wield is a really interesting point because... I think what's not discussed enough is the human price of this profiteering, the financial upside to chaos. Do you see a solution to that? Or rather, do you see these institutions like a Facebook, a Google, a Twitter, working towards acknowledging that central truth that they 
financially profit off this addiction? Even when companies are started with good intentions, there there's just this gravity of the incentive system. When the market capitalization of your company, when the wealth of all of your friends who work at those companies, when the success metrics that you have celebrated in the past mm-hmm. that you want to believe have like, I don't, I don't mean to psychoanalyze. I just, I can see how even with good intentions, unless there's an extreme care and mindfulness, that the incentives just pull things, pull companies and pull systems in a particular direction. And, and when you think about it, corporations under law have a fiduciary duty to maximize profit, right? This isn't, this isn't this question of bad apples. This is built into the structure of the economic system. So do I think that they are working on fixing it? I, I, I'm definitely sad to see. Uh, you know, you, you see other industries this happen to, right? You see it happen to oil or you see it happen to Wall Street. But you don't, I never thought it would happen to the very organizations that felt like they were, that started with these great missions and, and for these good purposes. And, and yet I have a hard time explaining it in a different way. So. I think that I think that behind the scenes, and I sometimes do talk to people behind the scenes who are thinking about these things, are working from the inside to fix it. But I also don't think we should hold our breath. You you shouldn't expect that to allow oil companies or tobacco companies to self-regulate for so long as there is an economic incentive, let alone a fiduciary duty, to maximize for profit at the expense of the good of people and planet. That is going to continue to happen. Even if some of the biggest players wake up, which I would love nothing more for that to occur, you, you will then get these dynamics where the unscrupulous companies will have an easier time outcompeting the ethical companies. And so you actually need to create a level playing field in the structure of the system that makes it so that at least the companies are incentivized to do things that are good for the world rather than do things that are good for the bottom line. And until there's those structural changes, I think it's incredibly difficult to imagine that we're going to really redirect the course toward toward the positive future that we deserve. How have you balanced this fiduciary duty with perhaps an ethical duty? I have tried my very best in my time working in business to find those opportunities that are in the intersection. I used to be more bought into this idea of conscious capitalism that, yes, there's a lot of ways you can use capitalism to disadvantage the world, and that's unethical. But if you're a conscious capitalist, you can direct your your attention and your resources in this way where sometimes you're making compromises and you're not maximizing for profit, you're always doing you're always doing the very best you can to do what's good for the world and you're using business as an engine you treat money not as the end in itself but you treat it as the rocket fuel that you can use within the context of the engine of, of the current system to try to make positive change mm. and and I've done my very best in my career to to do that to to align in that way to find things in the intersection of what of what can make money so that it can continue its mission in a profitable way while also being of, of social good but I, I used to think that would be sufficient, that all we would need to do is to have that kind of, let, let's introduce more and more ethics into business leaders. And now, one, I think we need much deeper structural changes because it's naive to think that you're going to ever stop getting the things that you're incentivizing. Like if, if you have financial incentives where it's more profitable to kill for a tree to be dead than alive, 
you're going to see people burning forests and turning trees in, into plants. If, if it's more profitable to destroy the planet, in, but in exchange, you're getting, getting profit, of course, you're going to see that happen. And beyond that, it's not sufficient. There's so many important things that need to happen in the world that are not happening because there's no business model. And when you look at like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, these goals that are the closest thing we have to a collective agreement as a species on where we should be going, making the world more sustainable, making things more, more equitable, having, having a, a world that has less poverty is better for more people. We are just so far off from being on track to achieve those goals. And I think it's because there's this, we, we haven't yet faced that it's not going to be enough to just have as side projects, these small peddling philanthropic budgets going toward these goals. Mm -hmm. We need to pivot the economic system toward the accomplishment of those goals, toward the accomplishment of the things that are actually good for humanity and the planet and away from, from what we have today. And of course, there, there are plenty of ways in which the current economic system, like, like the positive things of social media, is able to produce really positive things. I'm amazed the computer that we're using right now. And the current economic system is incredibly good at, at producing a large number of a specific kind of consumer good. And yet it's very bad at being equitable, at being ecologically sustainable, um, at being the system that we need to be able to tackle the, the real problems of the 21st century and the real opportunities of the 21st century. You know, I'd be a little remiss to not mention the criticism I've heard from many people in my life about this film and the criticism online. Each subject speaking, including yourself, but also Tristan Harris, formerly of Google, Tim Kendall, formerly of Facebook, Lynn Fox, formerly of Apple, the list goes on. All of you have financially benefited from the systems you each are now criticizing. Now that you've profited off this addiction, this problem, you're here to tell us about the dangers of technology, the same technology that was made dangerous by many of the people in this film. How have you personally reconciled with that criticism? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, I, I certainly don't think that the people who created the technologies are the people who are most important to listen to. I think the criticism that there are many other voices who have been sounding these alarms for a long time, who have ideas about solutions, um, who weren't involved in getting into the, the mess is very valid. And I would love to see more documentaries made that, and, and, and doing what I can to try to elevate those other voices. When I was asked whether to sit for the documentary, I thought it was an opportunity where because we have this, I mean, the other documentaries have been made and this one I think was more successful in part because actually having the whistleblowers, the people who were there who can speak to it was really powerful in getting the message out. And so I see it as an opportunity to use the platform that I have, which is not deserved, um, but is still there to, to help elevate these messages that are important to get out one way or another. For having profited off of these companies, I see it as, uh, similarly, that in, in many ways in my life, I have essentially been privileged by a system for unjust reasons. And it, the, the system is inequitable, and I'm one of the people who has benefited from it. And so as a result, I want to just do anything I can to be of service to the movement, to be of service to the just, the just transition to new, better systems 
and to use those resources as best I can to do so. Asana recently went public, um, and both Dustin, my co-founder, and I have committed publicly that 100% of the profit that we're making will be going toward philanthropic purposes. And in my case, those philanthropic purposes are focused specifically on looking at the shadow sides of the very system that is making that making that making uh, those capacities possible and looking at how can we support the great work that other people are doing to design new systems, imagine new systems, transition to new, to new systems within technology and beyond technology into governance and economics and culture. And what can we do as, what, what can I do as a technologist? What can I do from the particular resources and vantage point that I have to be as maximal service as I can to that work going forward? At the beginning of this talk, I mentioned that you co-created the like button. And when I tried to give you credit for this, you said it's a mixed bag. Why is it a mixed bag for you? Because there's more to success than money. Much, much more. Money is a means toward an end. Money is a, a collective fiction. Speaking only for myself and my vantage point and my values, my goal is when wherever I put my attention, wherever I put my effort, is to be of service, is to try to be of benefit to all sentient beings, to try to help to address injustice, to live in harmony with the planet, to leave the world better than I found it. Now, financial capital, or the, the amount of money that something makes, within the religion of the current economic system, we often pretend as though money is this metric of value. Mm. Like, the more money someone has, has accumulated, the more they deserve that money, the more that they must have contributed something good to the world. But we know that's clearly not true. And it's not just that there are some counterexamples. It's that the amount of money something makes corresponds to very limited forms of value, but doesn't speak to our happiness, doesn't speak to our deep satisfaction in life, doesn't speak to the quality of the relationships we have with each other, doesn't speak to the legitimacy of our democracies, thing, things that have real value, doesn't speak to our harmony with nature and, and our, our self-actualization and becoming deeper and, and more aligned with the good or the Tao or whatever you want to call it. Like, we, there's an enormous difference between financial success and actual success. I sometimes feel yeah, a real eagerness for, for more and more people to wake up, including the people who, are, who have the power and who are being more benefited by the system. But I also have a lot of compassion for why that's difficult. Um, and certainly I grew up in, a, it, like I said, I used to buy into conscious capitalism. It, it takes a long time of really questioning your assumptions and seeing things from, from different perspectives. And I'm not saying my perspective is right. Uh, but the more I have studied the nature of these systems, the very systems that, as you point out, I, I have benefited from, the more I've started to see their shadow, their dark side, their bugs, and, and almost started to see the, the current economic system as like this ancient 18th century technology that at this point we've discovered many bugs in, discovered many security holes in. And it's as if you were trying to run a modern civilization on Windows 95, it would, it would just be a disaster because... The, and, and it would just be silly because we have better, we, we have Mac OS X now, we, we have better tools. And so over and over again to see the, so many of the challenges of the world, and that's not just social media, but it's like problems with criminal justice, it's problems with our food systems, it's the fact that our healthcare complex spends 50 times as much money on 
managing diseases as curing them because it's more profitable to manage a disease than to cure it. You know, I used to be like, wow, there's so many different problems in the world. And there really are. And we need specialists in all these different fields or you know, all these different areas like the, to address each of the sustainable development goals. But it's also remarkable how much I think that there's a common cause, a common social operating system level cause of that, of course, you're going to get this because if it's more profitable to destroy, to exploit people, to mine our attention, then that's going to happen. Tell me about your vision of technology through one project and Asana, because on your site, you write the models of democracy that run the world are based on 17th century ideas. They rely on win-lose dynamics, depress participation, and fail to cultivate the full wisdom of humanity. All these systems, like social media or criminal justice or food or water or healthcare, all of that effort and all those resources are being organized by these underlying systems of governance, economics, technology, culture, and we can and we can sort of see how the problems that are arising in those that, that first set of systems arise from the problems in that, these underlying systems. And so one project is looking at what are the ways in which we can improve those systems and again, work with the people all over the world who are already working to work to improve those systems. So we're not always working to address symptoms, the individual problems that we're seeing. We're really trying to address those root causes and the, the, the fundamental reason that all these problems keep arising over and over again. And then look at how a, a new set of systems are not just solving problems, but actually would allow us to harness the incredible capacities that we have, the incredible human potential we have, to create a world that could actually work for everyone, or at least not, you know, not a utopia, but a world that gets better and better over time, that works for more and more people over time. What we talk about is a, a, a Kevin Kelly calls a protopia. Mm. It gets better and better over time. So in the case of technology, it's really tragic to see how much technology is this mixed bag, is this double-edged sword right now, because technology could be this. I, th I think with with more mindful design and a better system of incentives, technology could be vastly more beneficial to humanity than it is right now. You know, if, if instead of news feeds where you're being fed the thing that is most likely to keep you engaged, you can imagine you can imagine best feeds, right? The technology was instead showing you the things that were most consistent with your goals, most consistent with your values. Instead of social media trying to give you this cheap feeling or, or hollow version of the feeling of connectedness. Social technologies could be helping people have more face-to-face -face conversations, could be meet, meeting up in, in real life, could be of much greater benefit to people's actual social lives. Whereas technology is pulling us apart, it actually has the potential to help make us the most empathic society where we can we can actually see people who live in other countries and have those conversations right now it's leading to disinformation in a rampant way but it has the potential as we see in things like wikipedia to make us the most informed society in history the first step to solving a problem is acknowledging that there is one the problem of social media addiction is slowly being acknowledged by people but i want to ask you do you think it's something we are going to overcome. Do you think it's an addiction that we're going to beat? I think it's an addiction we can beat. And I'm, I'm careful not to speak in terms of predictions for, for a philosophical reason of that it's easy to, to treat life deterministically. And, and in certain cases, the rules of a game, the mathematics of a system do set it up so you can 
well predict what's going to happen. But what you can't predict is whether people will change the rules of those systems. Because people, at some fundamental level, uh, model do, we do have real agency. And, and so if, if we continue with the current path in, in broad strokes, if we continue to allow technology companies to mine our attention, to be allowed to produce these AI supercomputers that are optimized toward getting us to stare at our phones, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult to do so and potentially, eventually impossible. But I think there are things we can do uh, that if we, if we collectively and individually choose to do them, I actually feel quite confident we are capable of having a massive sea change and a massive shift to a very different kind of, of set of technologies and a very different set of relationships to those technologies. So there's changes we can make at the individual level of cultivating mindfulness, cultivating presence, starting to face, you know, as you said, the first step is to acknowledge that there is a problem. To, and, and I think this is one of the things the social dilemma has done in a powerful way is started to help people see, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person who's experiencing this gnawing, twitching feeling that makes me want to compulsively look, look at my device. The more that we see this is a collective problem and not a personal moral failing, the more that we can be in solidarity with each other, support each other, and find the, the help we need to take back sovereignty, take back control of our lives, and change our relationships to these, to these tools. But I also don't want to make, to make it sound like the responsibility is or should be or can be entirely in, in the hands of each individual person to make that change because these are systemic problems and they have systemic solutions. So we can, I think increasingly, we can apply pressure to companies to make these changes, to demand change, to make it increasingly shameful to work at a company unless you're working at that company in, in no small part in order to, to render those changes. The other place is regulation, obviously. And there, I think there's band-aid regulation that's urgently needed that we should be doing as quickly as possible. And then the longer-term solution is to change, again, the fundamental incentive structures and really the, the corporate governance of these organizations, right? We take it for granted that these are corporations with a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value when actually there are entirely different ways that we could be structuring these organizations, especially at the point where social media is really providing core democratic infrastructure. It, it, it is affecting the very structure of, of civic society. If that continues to be allowed to be in the hands of corporations that are maximizing not for protecting democracy, not for protecting our well-being, but instead are, are optimizing for, for maximization of profit, we, we, yeah, we, need, we need to have this radical transition from, from companies reporting to boards of directors who represent shareholder interests mm -hmm. to reporting to the people, to reporting to boards of representatives who represent the will of the people and the planet at large. Which, when you hear that, sounds like, oh, that's that's way far out. There's no way that's going to happen any time soon. That's not how our, our economic system works. But it's when you think about things that used to be high technologies, like electricity and telephone, at some point we realized these are basic public utilities. And yeah, clearly people survived for millennia without electricity. But now, because it's so deeply integrated into every aspect of society, we agree this should be democratized. This should be considered a public utility. There's, there's many models. Public utility is one model. There, I think there's even better models, more 21st century models for how you can do this moving of the power from the hands of the plutocrats and, and the inventors into the hands of the people. It sounds like we have a lot of work to do. You and I both. Yep. <laughs> I want to thank you for your time 
and for uh, speaking to some of these issues that I think are especially pressing right now. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Stay safe. That was Justin Rosenstein. If you'd like to learn more about the work he's doing, be sure to visit his website at www.justinrosenstein.com. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And... How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. You can also see him in the new documentary, The Social Dilemma, now available on Netflix. Next up is Dr. Ashish Jha. He is the dean of Brown University School of Public Health 
If you're a listener of our show, you have heard him before over the past six months. If you're new to the podcast, you've probably seen him on television. He's often breaking down the pandemic for CNN, MSNBC, PBS NewsHour, The Today Show, and many, many more. I'm grateful to have him back on here today to talk about this pandemic in a way that is sensical, factual, and honest. And I hope his voice, which is full of research, science, and compassion, helps you as much as it helps me. So, here is Dr. Ashish Jha. Dr. Jha, how are we doing? Hey, Sam. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back on. How are you? Well, I'm doing okay. You are unquestionably the only person who has come on this podcast a fourth time. <laughs> I, I take that as a good sign. Um, I know that the circumstances underneath it are maybe not uh, <laughs> the ideal ones, um, but but maybe uh, maybe I'm being helpful, in which case uh, I'm happy to come back a fifth time later, if helpful. I'm completely overjoyed to have you here. I hate the reasons in which you are here. I want to start with the new report from the New York Times that says that the number of people hospitalized with the coronavirus in the United States has risen to 40% in the past month, while the number of cases reported on last Thursday approached the record of nearly 76,000 set in July. Some 41,000 people are now hospitalized across the country. Those seem like all very real numbers. Where are we at in this country? This is the part of the conversation where I feel like I'm going to be a bit of a downer. We're in a little bit of trouble here, Sam. Uh, for the last six weeks, we've been watching things get worse and worse and worse. And many of us have been sounding the alarm. Where we are is we're in late October. We have much of the fall and winter still ahead of us. And by all accounts, uh, things are going to get meaningfully worse before they get better. It doesn't have to be that way. There are ways of turning this around even now. But I'm worried that if people don't get their act together, if policymakers don't, and if individuals don't, uh, we're heading towards a shutdown that's going to be potentially um, quite disruptive and harmful. What does getting your act together look like to you? Yeah, so there are about four or five things that we know matter for keeping the virus under control. Right now, where we are is we have a lot of infections out in the community. I mean, we're identifying 75,000 new cases a day, and we're probably missing probably another 75 or 100,000 a day. So number of people getting infected is probably close to a couple hundred thousand at this point. I just want to, before you move on, I just want to pause on that. I, 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 <laughs> I thought that might feel like a bit of a bombshell. I'm just sorry. Well, it, it was sort of like the third act of a film where they're like, and actually, <laughs> your mother is your father. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. What? She is? What do you mean? So it's always hard to know which infections you're not picking up, right? By definition, because you're not seeing them. The issue is that we always know that we always miss some number of infections. People who might have very mild symptoms, people who never come in, people who get quite sick and maybe just die at home and never come in. 
So there's some ways to try to estimate how many is that. Are we missing 10% of cases? Are we missing 50? Are we missing 90? And there are a couple of different ways of estimating that. And one of them is something called test positivity. What percent of your tests come back positive? And when that number starts climbing, it means you're missing more and more cases. Another way to think about it is how hard do you have to look to find one case? So the best example of this, in some ways, is a place like New York City. I mean, New York, the, well, the state is doing close to 100,000 tests a day, and they're identifying about 1,000 people infected. And that's about a 1% positivity rate. And when you are down to 1% positivity, that means you're probably not missing very many people because you're doing 100 tests to find one infected person. As a country, right now, we're doing about 16 tests to identify one positive person. We're at 6%. Once you get up to about 6%, you're probably starting to miss a good, sizable number. And, and again, I'm making estimates here, but my best guess is we're missing at least half the cases out there. But then there are states like North Dakota where the test positivity is 40%. And my guess is they're missing 95% of all the cases. They're basically they're getting only a tiny sliver you know, identified. Think of it as like an iceberg. The infections you identify are above the water. And the question is how much is below the water that you're missing. And I think we're probably missing half the cases. You say think about it like an iceberg. I don't want to think about it like an iceberg. <laughs> Can I say can I say no? I don't want to think about it like that. <laughs> Iceberg is never never an analogy that people use when they're talking about something happy and uh calming and useful, right? It's always uh it's much worse than it looks. As a medical professional, what have you made of the last 2-3 months in this country in which the pandemic has been actively politicized? I have to tell you, it's puzzling on a couple of different levels. The politicization is so, well, it's so unhelpful in the sense that it takes what's a, a pretty, you know, manageable problem. I mean, pandemics are hard under the best of circumstances, but we know a lot about this virus. We know how to control it. And there's a lot we can do to keep it under control. And you would think that we would, as a country, just kind of rally together and do those things. And yeah, there are areas where we disagree and some people would be a little more comfortable in one area or another. But the active politicization has totally undermined our national response. And so now you see places like California that are actually doing quite a good job. You know, in the last six weeks since Labor Day, we've had 40 states with large increases in infections. California is not one of them. Actually, the number of infections in California is about stable or down. Testing is up. Things are going pretty well. And you leave California and, and you go to a place like Wisconsin and things are a mess. And that kind of unevenness is really driven in large part by politicization. And as I said, it's baffling because when states follow scientific principles, guess what happens? The virus remains under reasonable control. Not a lot of people get sick. The hospitals don't get full. People don't die. And you would think that's a, that's a, you know, a goal that everybody could rally around. But that hasn't happened. And there's a bunch of reasons why that hasn't happened. But it is on some days just surprising that it is as political as it is. In some of these places like Wisconsin or North Dakota, have you been thinking about the sustained mental toll of the pandemic? which is then exacerbated by a pretty bleak winter ahead of them. 
Absolutely. And, you know, the mental toll here, it comes in, in two or three different ways it shows up in people's lives. So places like Wisconsin and North Dakota and places with really, really large outbreaks, they're going to continue seeing more of their friends and family members get infected and get sick and die. They're the stories in the newspapers are about field hospitals that are starting to get set up because they're running out of hospital beds. Uh, and when, by the way, you're not just running out of hospital beds for COVID patients, you're running out of hospital beds for everybody. So if you need a hospital bed because you got into a car accident, it'll be hard to get you one. So it's not just a COVID problem, it's an entire healthcare problem. And that is starting to happen. And there is, and one of the things I think very few people appreciate is we always sort of think about healthcare capacity as like beds and masks and gowns and ventilators, all of which are important. But it turns out that the most important element of hospital capacity is people, doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists. They can't keep going 24 seven. Like, they, the sustained mental toll for them of seeing death after death after death is pretty substantial. And burnout starts becoming a real problem. It was hard enough in New York when it was over about a two, three-month period. You look at a place like Wisconsin, and I think this could go on for many months. But there was one other part of the mental health issue that I think is just worth noting. is that these headlines that come out of Wisconsin and North Dakota create a fear among everybody. So you could be sitting in California where the numbers are not so bad. And it's real trauma. And you hear about field hospitals and it creates fear for you. So I think that the spillover of bad policy in certain pockets on the entire national psyche is a real problem. Before we get into the larger bad policies on the national level, I did want to take a moment for you to be able to speak on behalf of some of your colleagues and those on the front lines, most of whom have seemed to seemingly disappear from the public discourse as this pandemic ambles onward. What is the state of mind of a lot of these folks working day in and day out at these hospitals during the pandemic? You know, I have a lot of very, very close colleagues who are emergency medicine physicians who are truly the front lines. They're the place you show up first, right? And over the summer, there was at least in the Northeast and there was a sense of reprieve after a hard spring. And over the last month, every time I talk to them, what I hear is, oh my God, I had another overnight shift. And there were 15 patients who came in with COVID, of whom seven of them were incredibly sick and ended up in the ICU. And, you know, the problem with when you have these really sick people is that, first of all, it's always psychologically and, and, and emotionally hard to take care of very sick people, right? Because very, very sick people require intense clinical focus. Second is with COVID, they have an infectious disease. And so you are also very focused on trying to protect yourself because you got to protect your own health. You got to protect the health of your spouse and your kids. And the third, and this is the huge psychological toll on this, is in many, in, you know, somebody comes in with a car accident, stroke, you've got the family around, around the bed that can, you can talk to. With COVID, no one's there. And the family is far away, terrified. And when people die with COVID in the hospital, they die alone. And they, you know, people try to bring in an, an, an iPad so you can FaceTime with the family. But my God, what a way to say goodbye. So that kind of thing is hard enough when it happens once or twice. But when it happens day in, day out, shift after shift, it is a huge toll. And I am hearing 
all of the things that people were feeling in March and April starting to happen in September and October. The sustained isolation on all fronts, whether you've been quarantining at your house, not going to work, not seeing your colleagues, not seeing your family, not seeing your friends, and then the sustained isolation of, God forbid you do get sick, you're alone in the hospital, no one can visit you. All of this builds a pretty convincing case to most people I know in my life that this is something not to be played with. This is something to take seriously. And it sounds silly that I'm even saying that as we're in October of 2020. But I have to say, last week, as we watched the last and final debate between President Trump and Vice President Biden, I was once again struck by President Trump's inability to really recognize the severity of this issue, even after being infected himself. What did you make of that? Yeah, it's really striking, right? Because if you listen to his conversations with Bob Woodward, you have a sense that he knew the whole time that this was serious. But he has an inability to publicly acknowledge complexity and difficulty, that everything is simple, it's straightforward, it's right around the corner, it's about to end, things are going to be great. And sometimes that can feel comforting. God knows, if I believed that the pandemic's end was right around the corner, I would be absolutely joyous at this moment. And and what he does is he plays to that desire that we all have for this thing to just be over. We all want more than anything else for this to just end. And the problem with that is that it makes us susceptible to very simple messages. Like, actually, it's not that serious. We're all overreacting. And then you can relax and say, okay, it's not that serious. Or... If you just took hydroxychloroquine, or just did convalescent plasma, if you just did this, it would all be over. It's just the flu. Like, there are these simple things that keep coming up. The young people are totally immune. And we all want to believe it because we all want this thing to stop. It stopped being so painful for so long. And by the way, it's not just Americans who've fallen into this trap. Europeans, too. But where we are in late October... Europe is ablaze with coronavirus, with COVID. Like, they are in worse shape right now than we are. They got much, much better over the summer than we did. And they just decided it was over. Well, the virus did not decide it was over. But what's interesting is you can look to a whole series of countries, mostly in Asia, but in other places, that have taken this virus very seriously the whole way. And they're much more open. And their lives are much more normal. And kids are all back in school. And people are at work. And they don't have large numbers of cases because they've just been diligent. It's a classic example of there was a fire and it's a bad fire. And if you want to just hide it under the bed, it won't work. But if you deal with the fire, then you can go on. I think the American people would be much, much better off if you just leveled with them, if you told them the truth, if you explained to them that we're in for a long battle and that the vaccine, which I do hope will we will have one authorized sometime later this year um, will make a big difference, but the pandemic won't end. If you keep telling people that it's all about to end, and then when it doesn't, they get angry and they get frustrated and they don't know what to believe. 
We were told if we just got through March and April that the virus would disappear over the summer. Then we were told that once we got through the summer, that somehow by the fall would everything be better. And now we're being told it's the past. Those of us who are tracking this can give you a pretty clear picture of what the next three weeks, three months, next three years are likely to look like. And I just wish that the president would do that for the American people so people know. And then they can adjust and they can decide and they can make choices. So why don't we go through what that picture looks like? What is the realistic timeline of the vaccine and other various therapies at this point? First of all, I don't know when we will have a vaccine authorized, and neither does the president. And the only people who know, actually, they don't even know, but they have probably the best guess, the small number of people who serve on what are called DSMBs, data safety monitoring boards. They're the ones who are tracking the data of the vaccine trials. They're looking at the data on an ongoing basis. So CEOs of pharma companies don't know. Only these small number of individuals do. And what they're doing is they're looking at the data and saying, when do we have a signal that the vaccine is safe? And when do we have a signal that the vaccine is working? And when they see it, essentially they kind of raise a flag and say, it looks like we have, we have now, it's almost like, you know, with the Pope votes where the, like you get white smoke and you're like, ah, we have a Pope. So we're kind of waiting for that. And, and when there is data, uh, they'll go to the, uh, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration will evaluate that data. And then based on that, decide whether a vaccine gets authorized. So now I'm going to give you some guesses. And this is guesses because I'm tracking this stuff super closely. And my guess is that somewhere between mid-November and early December, we're going to get the first vaccine authorized. It will not be full approval. It'll be authorized in a population. And then I'll tell you what this all means for normal people and their lives. And I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of 2020, by the end of December, we get a second vaccine authorized and into January 3rd or 4th vaccine. But here's the key part. Once a vaccine is authorized, you're going to start vaccinating a select group of people. Who is that? We don't know. We don't have a clear plan from the federal government. But we all have a pretty good guess that the first batch will be Healthcare workers, doctors and nurses, and first responders, police, fire men and women, and, and EMTs and other folks, because they're on the front lines and, and they need to, they need to get the vaccine. The next group of people ready to be vaccinated and probably will be more into January, February, maybe March are high risk individuals, elderly people, essential workers, people who are also at high risk of infection. And again, this is my guess because we don't have all the plans laid out. And it'll depend on how quickly we have vaccines and how many vaccines and um, how quickly we can get a distribution set up, network set up. Some of these vaccines need to be frozen at minus 90 degrees. That's a very specific supply chain issue of like, you got to be able to get these vaccines in a frozen form into a doctor's office and or a pharmacy. You got to train up people on how to vaccinate. Many of these vaccines need two doses, 28 days apart. So you got to come up with a system to track people. All of that complexity means, here's how I think about this. If President Trump is reelected, then it's going to be his team managing all of that. And I have to tell you that this is not the most competent team in the country in terms of we've seen how badly they've mismanaged other supply chains like testing and protective equipment. So one is going to be very skeptical about their ability to pull this off. If, if it's a Biden team, I don't know who he's, who he would put in charge of this. 
but if it's run pretty effectively, I would not be surprised if a majority of us got access to vaccines March, April, maybe May. And you know, obviously I could be off by a month or so, but I don't think I'm going to be off by six months. Like I don't, it's not going to happen in January for most of us and it won't be next December, right? It'll be March, April, May. And the only other thing I'll say on this is that once a large proportion of people end up starting to get vaccinated, things will start getting much better. But here's the key point. None of us expect that the first vaccine will be 100% effective or even 95% effective. Might be 70% effective. Mm -hmm. And 70% effective is pretty good. But if you think about it, it's not 100%. And so it's not like your risk goes to zero. And it will make a big difference. What I am saying to folks is I expect next summer to feel meaningfully better but we're not going to be done with the pandemic. It'll just be meaningfully better. You've come on three times in the past. The timeline of our lives returning to normal has changed pretty much in each appearance on this show. Now, I'm not calling you a liar for that. I'm just simply saying that each time I've been told something different, and I believe fundamentally when you change that timeline that you believe what you're saying. But I do want to present this to you, there have been several polls across the country, and oftentimes somewhere between 40 and 55% of Americans are not comfortable taking a vaccine right now, even if it were to be available. Yeah. Obviously, lots of that has to do with this current administration, but I also think it has to do with the rapidly changing data presented by the CDC and other medical officials. How have you grappled with that criticism? I have always been authentic and genuine whenever I have laid out timelines. And, and, and they've gotten stretched for a couple of reasons, but this will get at your question around vaccine hesitancy as well, which is, you know, I say to people, <laughs> we're in a pandemic and with a virus that none of us had heard of a year ago. And we're learning stuff and we're learning along the way and we're getting better at making these um, judgments. And two things have happened. So one is that we've learned a lot and I feel like each time I come on, I can give you a more precise estimate because we know more. But the second is that progress on a certain set of stuff has gone much worse than I keep thinking it would. So for instance, back in May or June, I was really confident that we would have widespread testing available by the fall, that you could walk into a CVS and get a test and it would take five minutes and you get a result back and it would cost five bucks. And if we had that available today, or you could take a test at home, we had the technology for that in May. I just assumed that the government would step in, work with the companies, spend a few billion dollars and get that widely available. I tell you, I got that wrong. We didn't do that despite many of us screaming that that's what we ought to do. But if we had done that, that kind of testing widely available, we would have very few cases right now. We'd kind of have the pandemic under much, much better control. So some of what I've gotten wrong is overestimated our federal government's interest in keeping the virus under control. But let's talk about vaccine hesitancy and the fact that about, in many polls, about half of Americans are like, yeah, I think I'm going to pass. So first, it's worth asking, what is that about? Well, I think there are two or three things going on, and we have to think about each of them separately. 
One is there's always a certain amount of vaccine hesitancy in our society. There's a group of people who are just skeptical about vaccines. Second is we've seen these numbers of people being hesitant climb a lot just in the last two, three months when politicians started talking about timelines of vaccines. And when the president kept saying, we're going to have a vaccine before election day, people thought, well, how do you know that? It feels like you're trying to get a vaccine out for the election purposes. And how do I know it's going to be safe? So politicization of the vaccine development process, as that felt like it was, I think has caused a lot of people real concerns. And then last but certainly not least is that this administration, particularly the president, has been so um, awful in some ways around the issues of systemic racism and how it has affected, how the pandemic has affected the black community. Almost never a sense from him, uh, any kind of acknowledgement that this virus, this pandemic has had this very large disproportionate effect on Latinos, on blacks, on, on Native Americans. And the more he ties his own kind of identity to the vaccine, I think the more hesitancy and skepticism you see in those communities. So really large numbers of people in those communities being very hesitant. That, I think, is what really is, those three things are all driving where we end up with half the people being skeptical. The way I think about addressing this is first and foremost, I ask myself, is the vaccine development process such that I'm going to feel comfortable getting the vaccine? But even more importantly for me, or am I going to be comfortable having my children get vaccinated? And am I going to have, am I going to be comfortable having my elderly parents get vaccinated? And that is not driven by whether President Trump thinks it's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't really care what he thinks. That to me is going to be driven by how good the science is. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you something that may surprise you. The scientific integrity of this vaccine development process has been terrific. There have not been any corners cut. There have not been any things done that give me any pause about the development of the vaccine. There's been some bad communication. I hate the term that the White House uses, Operation Warp Speed. But when I actually look at the underlying science of the vaccine development, I think it's good stuff. And as long as it doesn't get muddled at the end by some political intervention by the White House, I'm feeling pretty comfortable based on everything I know. And I'll look at the data, and we all will, and we'll make a decision. So I think once you have the scientific community saying, whatever the politics, this is a good vaccine, I think for some people that'll help. But I also think we're going to make progress by reaching out to communities of color, to working with leaders in those communities, faith-based leaders, clinical and scientific leaders who work and live in those communities, and engaging all of them on a campaign to share good scientific information with people. I, I don't believe we'll get 90% of Americans. But I think if we do our job right and communicate with people with respect and honesty, I don't know that we couldn't get 70% there. And that would be great if 70% of people could get vaccinated. It sounds like you're telling me that you have faith in the medical officials, independent of this current administration. Yeah, partly because I'm looking at the data, right? I'm looking at the data that people are publishing. And it's not like there's one group of medical officials who could... It's scientists that I know who are running the clinical trials, right? It's their name on the papers that are being published that with the data. And I know these people. They're not cooking the books. And you don't have hundreds of thousands of scientists around the country cooking the books. So I'm very confident in the scientific integrity of the process. I think the scientists at the FDA are doing a good job. NIH is doing a good job. 
I don't trust the political appointees for a second, right? There are a lot of political appointees in these positions. I don't trust that. But I can look at the underlying data and the science and the journals and say, oh, yeah, based on this, I feel pretty good. As people are listening to this podcast, we're heading into a very historic, unusual election day. Perhaps people are listening and it is election day, or perhaps they just voted at their polling places. How are you feeling about the safety of this day? I actually feel like it's really safe to go and vote in a, in a polling uh, station, in a voting booth. There may be long lines, wear a mask, make sure you have a little bit of distance between the person in front of you and the, per- and the person behind you. Uh, you may have to stay out for a long time. So bring some warm blankets and, you know, and, and all of that stuff. Keep yourself safe. When you go into the voting booth, use some hand sanitizer, vote, wear your mask. But I, as I'm looking at plans that the states and cities are making about how to keep those areas, I'm very confident that the voting process itself will be very, very safe. It'll be safer than going to a grocery store. And so if you feel like it, you can tolerate going to a grocery store for a short bit, this is much safer than that. In this country, the pandemic started at the end of February. It took control of our lives in March and April. May felt especially hopeless. Come summertime, depending on where you lived, there was a reprieve, like we had a vague handle on it. Now we're entering what many have called phase three of the virus. But on a personal note, as someone engaging and studying the pandemic each and every day, how are you doing? It does feel like every day is a sprint and we all can sprint for a little bit. And I think about a month and a half ago or so it hit me that not only had I been going nonstop for many, many, many months, that it wasn't about to end. I kept thinking, well, if I just get through August or just get through September and now I don't even know what, when exactly. So that part is a bit of a challenge, but then the, what gives me comfort is that I am still like among the most privileged, right? I have resources, I have a job, I have a family that's all doing pretty well. And, and so I can manage this, but, but, the, but the chronicity of this is I think starting to wear on all of us, everybody in America. But I think for those of us who are like just deeply steeped in the pandemic, I spend hours every day staring at data from every state, from every country. That's starting to, I think, really wear on us. One of the challenges is a little bit of a funny thing to talk about, but I'll, I'll mention is like the personal attacks because of the deep politicization a bunch of people have sort of now decided that the enemies are the doctors and the public health officials and so whether it's through social media personal letters emails i've always gotten some but that is really ticked up in a very very substantial way and that's that's weird and and that's a little uncomfortable and certainly um, that part, I think, has been a bit of a challenge. But ultimately, Sam, as long as I feel like I'm being helpful to people, to your listeners, to the broader American population, to policymakers who I spend enormous amounts of time talking to, I feel like it's the least I can do. So I think I and others are just going to keep going. But we have some ways to go. Like we're not right around the corner. And we've all got to kind of hang in there. Uh, And we can get through it together, but it'll be a lot easier if all of us show a little more kindness to each other 
and a little bit more humility about how hard this is and how we're going to get through it. You say we have this place to go. What is that path forward? And genuinely, do you think we'll take that path? There are two paths in front of us. I mean, there's a path of deciding that as a country, we're going to reject science, that as a country, we are going to scapegoat a group of people and say that the problem is people who are black or Latino or Native Americans, and we're going to pit one American after, against another. I think that set of views is still a minority view. I think a majority of us want to pull together. We care about each other as Americans, and I think we want to use science and evidence and data and understand that science, evidence, and data isn't perfect. We're going to all get to get stuff wrong. I've gotten stuff wrong. But that if we all make a good faith effort to do our best, that we do much, much better as a country. I think that's where a majority of Americans are. And I think that if we all act that way, and if we all engage, and the next three to six months are going to be much, much better. And we will emerge a little bruised and a little battered, uh, but in a place where we'll have a chance to build a different vision of what it is to be American. I hope you're right. Dr. Ja, thank you for coming on. And really, um, I appreciate your time. As always, it's a pleasure and stay well. And uh, thank you again for having me back. Until next time. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Justin Rosenstein and Dr. Ashish Jha. To learn more about them, you can visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. You can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, Drop me a line at sam at talkeasypod.com. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel, David Harding, Rena Jung, and Kevin Kaur. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gabrzak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be off this coming Sunday, November 1st. We'll be back on November 8th with Professor Noam Chomsky. Until then, please vote, stay safe, and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.